This is Deep Blue, where we get the true life stories of BYU athletes, coaches, and fans. Here's your host, Jerem Jordan. On today's show, I chat with a man who has gone from admitted compulsive stutterer to preacher, from less than academically inclined to author, and from BYU to the NFL. He's the one and only Pastor Derwin Gray. What's up, Derwin? Hey, man. How's it going? It's always good to be with you. How about those Cougars, huh? Oh, my gosh. Everything's been amazing. Every sport. I, I tweeted the other night, the Big 12 version of BYU is an even better BYU. Life is good right now. Yeah, man. You, you know, it, it, it is it is pretty cool. I had written a op-ed piece for the Desert News a few months back. And when you look at uh, all of the sports, you look at the academic rigors, uh, it's like the big, like BYU's doing the Big 12 a favor. So that is, uh, that's exciting. It's a, it's a good time to be a Cougar. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay. Your story starts in where? San Antonio, Texas, growing up as a kid? It, yes. What was it like? And how'd you end up at BYU? Yeah, you know, um, so a teammate of mine by the name of Earl Kaufman was recruited by uh, Claude Bassett, who was the linebacker coach under Coach Edwards. And Coach Bassett was tasked with recruiting the state of Texas. He's a phenomenal recruiter. So he went and got Earl uh, the year before me. And then he came down and got me. And I think the biggest thing was, number one, I knew that I could play for one of the greatest coaches of all time, Lavelle Edwards. I knew I'd get a great degree. I knew I'd be on ESPN playing a, a ton. But on my recruiting trip, man, they put me on some snowmobiles. And I was like a Texas boy from South Texas on snowmobiles. Are you kidding me? It was absolutely bonkers. We just had a blast. That's amazing. So the snowmobiles got you. <laughs> snowmobiles got me, man. I mean, it was it was great. What's your family dynamic growing up and how did that impact your entire life and who you are at that point of your life? Yeah, so my mom was 17 when she had me. My dad was um, 19 and both of them struggled with various issues, mental health issues, substance abuse issues. And uh, so as a kid, I didn't know that, of course, but my grandparents primarily raised me on my mom's side. And my granddad never seen him miss a day of work ever. Um, he wasn't the most emotionally connected, but he gave me a great example of what hard work looks like. And my grandmother was very protective, very wise, very loving. Uh, but my context, man, was just super dysfunctional. Like as I look back now, it was so much trauma, so much dysfunction that, um, and God's grace, football was really a sanctuary for me. And I think one of the reasons why I loved football was because so much of my life I was not in control of. But with football, my coaches taught me, listen, you work hard, you study the playbook, you give effort. There's some great things that you can do. So that was some, something I actually could control that I was actually good at. And so we were not church going people like I didn't I didn't know the gospel. I didn't understand God's grace and the human heart's going to worship something. So for me, football shaped every factor of my life. Like I went to school to stay eligible to play football. <laughs> yeah. And then you were eligible to play football. And you've talked about 
you had an ACT that was too low to probably get in now, but in the nineties, you were good, right? Yeah. So, uh, back then in 1989 to get my scholarship to BYU, I had to score 16 on my ACT and there is no way in the world I would have got into BYU with its academic rigors today. So I'm very grateful. I'm thankful that coach Edwards went to bat for me that the administration gave me a chance because it was just that no one in my family had graduated high school. And so you know, I'm thankful for the rigors of BYU, but I do think there's a lot of student athletes like myself who with training and mentoring and study hall and great professors could go on to do phenomenal things. I ended, I ended up graduating with a three point something in my major, got a master's magna cum laude, and um, I have a doctorate and I'm an author now. Um, I speak at universities, you know, I recently spoke at Baylor, Um, you know, so in many ways, I'm grateful, but I wish that your score on a test did not determine the sum total of how well you could do in school. Yeah, I didn't think I was getting into BYU, and I was lucky to get in, and it was an amazing experience. So yeah, I, I can relate to some degree, not that degree, but you end up getting in, which is great. Once you come to BYU, what's it like for you? Because you're not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You're a black athlete in the 90s. The dynamic's certainly different. What was life like for you? You know, um, overall, it was it was a phenomenal experience. I, I'm, I'm fairly focused, so I wasn't going to let anything really distract me from my, from my goals. But in saying that, you know, uh, going to an LDS culture and being a black non LDS athlete, like you're a double minority. And so there are a lot of assumptions that people make. There were comments. I remember one time uh, we went to dinner with some people, uh, they were white and, you know, they gave us all book of Mormons, of course. And um, which, you know, I re- I respected them wanting to share their faith. And the mom said, well, what are you guys going to do to date? Because there's not very many black girls here. And we all, me and my other black teammates, we all just started laughing. We said, yeah, finding a date isn't a problem. That's not a problem at all. And she was like, shocked, like, what do you mean? And so, you know, and then there were some times, um, I think it was either Book of Mormon class. um, We were talking about why uh, black men didn't have the priesthood up until 1978. And I'm not sure if the LDS church still teaches this or if they do or don't, but the idea of, you know, the curse of Cain and the pre-existent war on the planet Kolob and those who are less valued came to earth as black. And um, I remember walking out of class. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. Um, so, you know, there were, there were those types of things. And my wife is white and um, one of the white L- LDS players said to her, you know, that that's not right, um, you know, to marry a black man. Of course, we've had black people say the same thing, too. But overall, my experience was phenomenal. Um, going to BYU taught me how to learn about other cultures, how to learn about other people. Um, and that's really served me well, because the better 
when you listen to understand versus being understood, you can grow so much faster. But it was a transition. But if I could do it all over again, I would do exactly the same thing. Why is that? Because there was some difficulty. There was some overcoming certain things. Why do you still value that experience? Well, number one, I believe that nothing happens by accident. I believe that God the Father meticulously, through my free actions, created that opportunity because I met my wife there. Listen to this. I met my wife January 15th, 1990, which is Dr. King's birthday, February 15th. I'm black. She's white. And now we lead a church that's filled with black and white and Asian and Latino and all types of people. Like we're living out Dr. King's dream, which for me, though, um, Dr. King got his dream from the King of Kings because the book of Revelation describes the new heavens and new earth as every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping Jesus. So my wife and I, two non-LDS people, two non-religious people meet at an LDS school my freshman year, and we're still together. That's that's just, you can't make, make that up. Number two, um, Coach Edwards was like a father to me. Um, Dick Felt, um, Tom Homo used to my sophomore year when I led the conference in interceptions, you know, would let me wear his Super Bowl rings. And that would make me aspire to be better the way, you know, the way he coached me and just so many lifelong friends. And then the academic education that I received, um, I love the even though I'm not LDS, I love the LDS culture. I've grown to love the LDS people. I love BYU. It was such a formative time in my life. And so, heck yeah, I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat. I love that. And the church has come back and stated certain things about that process. I'll actually text you a link that the church put out about some of the information there where I've even said, man, eh, that was pretty weird. I don't really like that. There's been a good explanation of that. So I'll text you that after this. But Tom Homo let you wear his Super Bowl rings. That's pretty cool. He has four. Did he let you wear all four? Uh, he probably switched them up because we would <laughs> uh, we would uh, we would we would be on road trips and um, we would be eating and I'd be like, man, let me let me wear your ring. And so he would let me wear his ring for hours. <laughs> you like and hanging would, out with it on? Yeah, just hanging out, going to meetings with it on. He let me wear it. And uh, now that I think back, that was genius of him because um, the way I describe it, that ring is an artifact and an artifact tells a story. And within every story is triumph, success, failure, so much that goes into to it. And by letting me wear it, it was like, well, if he went to this school and I go to this school, then maybe I can do this. And it was beautiful what he was able to do as a player, as an assistant coach, obviously his experience as an assistant at Stanford, head coach at Cal, and what he's done as the athletic, athletic director at BYU has been incredible. He's built on what Glenn Tuckett established. He passed away a couple weeks ago. Hopefully he rests yeah. in peace, right? Tom has been such an influential figure and everything. That's a great story that he just let you wear those rings and that gave you this vision of, hey, I can do it because this guy did yeah. it. Yeah, well, and let me give you another Tom story, too. I'll give you a, a few more. So 
uh, freshman year spring ball, I'm competing with uh, Josh Arnold and Norm Dixon. So I have a great spring. I crush it. And then when we get to the season, I'm still not starting. Josh and Norm are starting. And so, but I'm coming in on nickel and I'm playing special teams. So for the first three games of the year, without starting, I was defensive player of the game and special teams player of the game without starting. And, you know, I was talking to Tom and he's like, well, I felt like you did what it took to start, but I ultimately can't make the decision. And so finally, when I finally did get a chance to start versus New Mexico, I had three interceptions and a touchdown in two and a half quarters because they pulled me out of the game in about the middle of the third quarter. And so we never had any more conversations about whether Derwin Gray <laughs> should start anymore. But it was it was like, OK, I'm going to make this so hard on Coach Felt that you're going to have to play me because, you know, it's just the way it was. But Tom was like, well, I advocated that you should be starting because you won the job. And so when I finally got that chance, my previous work of defensive player of the game, especially teams player of the game, street, three straight games affirmed that. And now that I look back, I go, dude, do you know how amazing that was? Then I didn't think nothing of it because you're working on your craft. Now I go, as a 19-year-old coming in, instead of complaining about not starting, you just went out and balled out. And uh, I remember we were playing Washington State and I wasn't in the game. And I was like, I was like, Tom, put me in the game. He's like, why? I said, so I can make some plays. And so we started going back and forth, like, all right, get in there. And so uh, I went in and played really, really well. <laughs> That's, are you talking about the 1990 game the week after Miami? I am. That's one of the greatest games ever played at BYU. Nobody talks about it. It was, bro, it was phenomenal. Washington State with Tim Rosenbaugh, we were flat the first half and they were pounding us. Second half, we just went absolutely bananas. We went bananas. The offense was great. The defense, we really locked them down and we came back to win just an, an incredible game. And then the next week, we go to Eugene, Oregon to play a mediocre Oregon team, and we lost 32 to 16. And I'll never forget on the road trip back, I won't mention the player's name, um, but he said, man, it feels good to have the pressure off that we lost. Uh -huh. And I looked at him like, man, let me move out this seat and go sit somewhere else before I get mad. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> My parents went to that game. They didn't take me. I was six, living in Portland. Yeah, you probably wouldn't have wanted to go to that game. If I had gone to that game, we would have won. No, nah, I'm just playing. <laughs> no, we, uh, <laughs> man, we were, we were flat. It was an ugly game. And they ended up being like seven and five that year. They were not a good team. Yeah, that was, that was a bummer because you get up to, what, you're ranked fourth at that point. Okay, let's rewind to Washington State, and then I want to talk Miami after that. Okay. Well, let's talk Miami. This will help. So you beat UTEP. People forget. You beat UTEP to open the season. Yep. You're ranked 16th. Fury's good. Denver had a really nice 89, you know, blew up uh, Utah with 70 points. He was, he was legit, right? Defense was really good. 
did you guys feel like you could be a top five team? Cause you end up being top five for a lot of the year. And then you get this chance and a rematch with Miami because they had kind of, kind of pounded BYU right a year or two before. And obviously it's the greatest win in BYU history to most. And uh, so preseason, how are you feeling about this group? We actually had great confidence going into that game. Like we, we felt like we were going to win. We felt like we were going to win the way we practiced, the way we like, we really felt like we had a chance to win the, the game. Like we knew our offense was special. Like when you talk about the greatest tight ends in BYU history, people don't talk about Chris Smith enough. Uh, he, he may, if he was in today's football he would be in the NFL because tight ends now are just big wideouts. They don't really block anymore. He would have been phenomenal. Chris Smith was unguardable. Andy Boyce was phenomenal. Uh, Matt Bellini, Stacy Corley. To all, I mean, so we knew our offense was loaded. After the first play against Miami, Randall Hill ran a deep route, and he was going back to the sideline, and he told uh, – <laughs> Tony Crutchfield, he goes, how do you, how do you got, how do y'all breathe in this altitude? And we were like, we got him. We got him. <laughs> and uh, we were, we were, we were very confident. And uh, we knew if we played them 10 times, they would beat us nine times. We just needed to be the best team one time. And we were. And Irvin, Irvin Lee played the game of his life. Um, he, he had some incredible plays and people often ask me, what's your favorite play in, in my history there? And it's a play that most people won't even know. And it's a play that I didn't make. I was coming in on a blitz from the nickel. I came out and on film, I'm just flying through the air, pressuring a quarterback. He throws a ball to the end zone. And Irvin picks the ball off. And the next thing I know, I'm the first guy picking Irvin up, celebrating with him that he picked off the ball. I have no idea how, on a blitz, I'm flying through the air, pressuring the court quarterback. The next thing I know, I outrun everybody to go celebrate him and lift him up. If you get a chance, go back and watch that play. And I watch that over and over and over. And I say, you know what? If somebody wants to say, what was my plan career about? That's it. Maximum effort. Team comes first. And I want to celebrate what my team does. We love that play so much, Dewey, that, and I call you Dewey because that's that was your name, BYU, Derwin, is that we put it number 41 in the top 100 plays in BYU football history last December. We that's love crazy. that play. Obviously, beating Miami matters. But, yes, that was a great play. And Ir Irvin's a freshman, right? No, Irvin. So, Irvin was a junior because he was a okay. year older than me. But he didn't really play a whole bunch. Irvin, Irvin had a lot of talent. I mean, but he had Brian M Mitchell, who played in the NFL. that was head of him. Bergeson played in the NFL. Crutchfield got into an NFL camp. And so, I mean, that's pretty impressive. You know what I mean? And so, but when he got his shot, man, he did his thing and he will forever go down in BYU history um, for what he was able to accomplish. That was, that was epic.
Ty has talked about how the the field storm happens. He yeah. says that like 200,000 people claim they were at this game. Obviously, it's like 66, right? He says he rushes to the locker room because he doesn't want to miss Lavelle's kind of speech to the team. And he gets there, and nobody's there. Everybody's on the field. What happened with you once the field storm rushed? I don't – you know what, man? I don't even remember – I don't even remember what happened in that other than uh, it was just pure pandemonium. It was just pure epicness. Like the, the Miami game is the game that every kid prays that they could be a part of. Um, It was, it was incredible because when you look at that Miami team, right. Think about all the players they had. I, I mean, that, that team was so good that the highest, grossing actor in the world today was on it rock people forget that Dwayne Johnson was a backup offensive or defensive lineman on that team (laughs) but that team was stacked with all pro players NFL players I mean it was crazy but man we were absolute warrior poets that that night the defense played lights out and people forget I think the offense had four or five turnovers and we still won they always say, oh, you have to play perfect to win against the number one. No, you don't. Just have to beat them on that day. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, people forget. So that was one of the Five games turnovers. where the Four fumbles, defense, one pick. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like – and we and we still won. That, that 90 team could have contended for a national title. Um, but when you're not – in that atmosphere of success at that level, it takes time to build that up. And um, yeah, that's really hard to come by at a school like BYU. At most schools, if you're not the upper echelon of the SEC or Oklahoma or Ohio State. The ball has to break a certain way. It did in 84, right after 83. BYU's on the map in 83, has to climb the charts. But BYU finished seventh in 83. They were on the map, right? Yep. A few years later, you guys are doing it. And I want to dive into that in just a second. But, okay, next week, Washington State. We were talking about it, but I just want to make sure people understand how crazy this was. You're down 29-7.5 to an yeah. unranked Washington State team. Yep. What's the conversation like there? Because you guys end up winning this game 50-36. to 36. <laughs> Like the craziest comeback. No one really talks about every year I try and bring this up because yeah, man. the greatest games ever played. Yeah, you, you know, a couple of memories that I take back from that game is one, I played with a broken wrist, which is still broke to this very day. My navicular, that part of your wrist does not get a lot of blood. So I can tell when it's going to get cold because my wrist aches. But I was playing with a cast, which was just awesome. And I remember at the end of the game, uh, we stopped them on defense and I ran down the field and I was hyping up the crowd and I did like a cartwheel flip it was so exciting but I just you you know coach Edwards rarely raised his voice you know he kind of said hey this is what we're going to do this is what it's going to take for us to come back and we did I mean we were a talented and tough enough team to be able to do it so he raised his voice at halftime no I don't remember him raising his voice I, I I think he was just cool he was collected And uh, the great thing about Coach Edwards that I'm not sure if he gets enough credit for is his capacity to empower his coaches. 
And so he would let his coaches coach. I mean, we, we knew he was dad. Like we knew he was dad. We knew he was the architect. We knew he was the mind behind what we did. Um, but we were at halftime, we were more angry that we had played that bad. Mm. It came out on top. Okay. So this team is ranked fourth going into Hawaii. Ty wins the Heisman that day at the pool in 2019 at the Hawaii bowl. We actually stayed at the princess Kailani hotel and there's a pool. And I'm like, Oh, this is the spot. This is where it happened. Were you out there with the team when that happened? Oh yeah. Were you, were you well, no, no, beach? no. I was, I was actually, <laughs> I was actually in my room. I couldn't get down there, but we were, but we were watching it. And, um, Obviously, it was incredible when your teammates do something that is so utterly significant, right? I mean, the Heisman Trophy. And I, I think that was back in the day when the Heisman actually meant more than it does now. I think the Heisman now means the best quarterback on the best team in the country, not necessarily the best player. And a defensive player is not going to win the Heisman unless – you play offense as well. So, but back then it was still the Heisman. And then particularly being from San Antonio, like Ty and I are from San Antonio. So that was, that was huge. And, uh, you know, I'm glad we celebrated the Heisman because on the football field, they beat the dog snot out of us. I mean, they just bludgeoned us, man. It was, it was so bad. And, And the game started out good. Like we started out running the ball because they were so small. You know, but man, once the once the once the um, onslaught happened, it was just a landslide and Hawaii hated us. They loved beating us. And unfortunately, I only beat Hawaii one time. And that was my junior year in 91 when they came to Provo. But every single time I went to Honolulu, great vacation, but we got beat. And that's probably why we got beat. We thought it was a vacation. That 90 team is one of the greatest teams of BYU all time, but it's hard to put them in that conversation with three losses because obviously the bowl game doesn't go well. 65-14, Ty separates both shoulders. He's trying to get through it, dot, dot, dot. Tell me about the 90 team as a group because you guys ranked in the top five forever. Unfortunately, two losses in the season. You go from four to, you know, in the 20s. That team was great, but unfortunately it didn't end the season strong enough. Yeah, so this is this is kind of what I would say is I knew going into the bowl game, we were in trouble. I remember talking to some of my teammates and they were like, we're going to play Texas A&M. Who is that? I'm like, uh, so the school that you're bad mouthing, they didn't recruit me. I'm a sophomore and I'm already one of the best players on this team. Texas A&M didn't even send me a letter. They did not recruit me. So how good do you think they are? If I come up here and I'm leading the conference in interceptions and a leader in our secondary and defense as a sophomore, and they didn't recruit me, oh, who's a and I'm like, listen, man, you guys need to shut up. Like, these are Texas boys. This isn't, this isn't uh, um, Utah. This isn't New Mexico. This is Texas A&M. And man, we got on the field. Those dudes were so fast. They were so big and they dominate. It was bad. It was really bad. Now, personally, I had a great game because I wanted to make them mad for not recruiting me. So 
I went nuts. I, I don't remember how many tackles. 11 tackles, team high. What is that? 11 tackles, the team high. 11 tackles. I went crazy. I was breaking up passes. Um, so I wanted them to respect me because being from Texas, you don't even recruit me. I got to go out of state. Uh, one of their one of their coaches after the game shook my hand and, and said, um, you're a great player. So that made me feel some some solace. But man, gosh, they were so good. And uh, when we were preparing to play them, it was very lackadaisical. And we didn't get a lot of practice because the weather was bad. And back then, we didn't have a dome. And so we barely practiced. I always felt when I was there for BYU, bowl games were kind of like, eh, if we win, great. If we don't, eh, it's all right. And so all these family members would be traveling with the team and it was like a vacation. And I didn't, I did not like that part because you want to, any game you play, you want to win, but specifically in 90, you know, the score was 65 to 14. They were doing double reverse passes when it was 51, seven. And I'll tell you why they did years go by. I'm even out of the NFL. I see Bob Davies who was the defensive coordinator for that AM team at an airport. We begin to talk. I introduce myself. He goes, oh, yeah, I know you. You went to BYU. You guys sure were talking a lot of trash before that game. And this is like 10, 15 years after that game. So they took it very, very personal. And uh, as you can see, um, yeah, it was – that's one game I don't want to go back and play. And Ty did not separate both of his shoulders. Quentin Coriot separated both of his shoulders. And <laughs> I ended up playing with Quentin with the Colts. Quentin Coriot was a second pick in the, uh, I think, was it 91 draft, 92 draft. And uh, he was 6'3", 250, ran a 4'5", 4'4". And he crushed Ty. Uh, I mean, props to Ty for trying to play, but I mean, they were just too physical, too fast, and we were too underprepared. And so that I call that 90 team, the team that could have been, and that was by far the best BYU team I played with my four years there. Uh, my first two seasons there, we were 20 and six. And we very easily could have been some, something probably like, maybe 23 and three, but it is what it is. A special year regardless. With Ty being from San Antonio, did you play against him in high school? Did you know no. him? No, he was uh, – Ty was 4A and my school was 5A. But, you know, you're, you're always reading about him because he was just setting records like crazy. And Ty was two years older than me. I didn't redshirt at BYU and, uh, and Ty did, so that's why – you know, he was a year ahead of me. So you play at BYU, you have a tremendous career, which, by the way, do you know the difference in interceptions between you and Tom Homo? One of you is fifth and one of you is sixth. You best believe I know. I got 14, <laughs> Tom has 13. That's exactly right. And and I have 283 tackles, 25 broken up passes, four forced fumbles, and two touchdowns. Um, my interceptions right is five, but I don't think another defensive back has as many tackles as I have. 
or as many broken up passes as I have. And so um, I played in a great era with great teammates, but man, the older I get and I go back and look at film, I was a playmaking machine. I mean, I made plays, man. And um, yeah, I'm like, if you're going to wear number five, you got to make some plays because that's Kyle Morrell, that's Dewey Gray. So that, that number on defense in the secondary matters. D'Angelo Mandel's repping that now. He's doing a pretty good job. He's playing very, very well. He uh, he has a lot of NFL potential. There is one more gear that he has yet to tap into, and I'm hoping that he does that because he's he's special. He sent me um, he DM'd me some practice film, and he wanted me to look at it. And there was a play where he was playing press coverage. And he was running sideways and outrunning the receiver who was running straight. And I damn, I, I said, do you understand what you did right here, bro? He was like, what? I said, you're running sideways. He's running straight and you're running faster than him. And you were able br- to break on the curl route. I, I said, that's, you can't teach that. And uh, I said, tap more into those instincts and continue just to let it rip. I love that you have a relationship there. That's fantastic. I love the connection between previous generations of BYU football and the current, which is awesome. I want to go back to something you said. The human heart will worship something. You've said before, when you were a teenager, football was your God. It gave you identity. When does God start to take a bigger place in your life? Because obviously as a pastor now, it's almost everything. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what happened was football began to let me down, right? So I leave BYU. My wife and I were like beloved. People thought we were Mr. and Mrs. BYU. She's on a track team. It was great. And then I get to the Colts and all of a sudden you go from being a big fish in a small pond to being like a crustacean in the ocean. (laughs) I wasn't playing. I didn't really get along with the players. Um, I had, I had experienced some racism from some of the older black players because my wife was white and um, or prejudice, not necessarily race, right? Racism. So that first year I'm like, that's terrible. I want to go back to Provo. Second year, my first NFL game, I lead the team in tackles. It was great. I'm like, man, this is going to be easy. The next week, I got my lunch handed to me, got benched, struggled to get my confidence back. But my third year, man, I'm team captain. I find my role on nickel and dime. Uh, I picked off Steve Young, who I looked up to Steve when I was a player at the Y. He would come back and he would motivate us and inspire us. And here I am intercepting him, right? I knocked Dan Marino out in a crucial point in the game. We come back to win. I mean, I'm playing really, really good. But at the end of that third year, it hit me like, there's got to be more. There has to be more. And so not only was I unfulfilled, but then in my core, I didn't know what forgiveness was, but I knew there were bad things I did that I couldn't erase. Um, Also, my identity was so much in football. Who would I be when that was over? 
I, I couldn't have true intimacy with my wife. Intimacy means into me, you see, not just the physical act. True intimacy is the emotional connection. And the reason why is because I was so insecure myself. Football was very much like a Superman suit that I could wear, but kryptonite was in my heart. And I had a teammate with the Colts. His name was Steve Grant, but his nickname is the Naked Preacher because every day after practice, he would put a towel around his waist and he'd grab his Bible and he'd ask guys, do you know Jesus? And so his nickname was the Naked Preacher. (laughs) And over a five-year process, um, I listened to his words. I watched his life, started going to little Bible studies. And uh, on August 2nd, 1997, fifth year in NFL training camp, I remember walking from lunch and going to my dorm room and I called my wife on the phone and I said, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And the best way I can describe it, you know, Latter-day Saints say from from, from Moroni 10-9, you know, you get a burning in the bosom. The way I describe it is for the first time in my life, I was overwhelmed with the fact that someone knew everything about me and loved me, that I didn't repel them. They didn't reject me. It was fully, it was full acceptance. It was full forgiveness. It was full love. It was God's divine presence. And for three nights after that, I just, I just wept and I cried thinking, how can someone like Jesus love someone like me? And the idea of grace became so amazing. And what I tell my Latter-day Saint, Latter-day Saint friends is grace doesn't produce laziness. Grace produces holiness because of your gratitude for God, that you're like, there's nothing I could do to rescue myself. Like I'm drowning in an ocean and someone jumps in and saves me. What can I do to repay them to be grateful, a grateful, responsive life? And so That happened in 97. I continued in 97. I was working through injuries in 98. I signed as a free agent with the Carolina Panthers. And man, I was so angry. Bill Polian became the general manager for the Colts that year. That was the year that they drafted Peyton. And I was like, I know they're going to keep me because Polian loves special teams. A team that I played for for five years. I was the RCA man of the year in 1994 for the Colts a pillar in the community, the assistant general manager called me and the conversation went this way. Derwin, the new general manager does not want to resign you. Good luck. Click. That was it. Phone hung up and I called my mentor. His name is Alan Bacon. And I said, Alan, the Colts don't want me back. And he said, praise the Lord. I said, no, 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 they don't want me. He goes, I heard you. And I said, praise the Lord. I said, praise the Lord. Why? He goes, well, because when that opportunity closes, another one will come. And lo and behold, a few weeks go by and the Carolina Panthers want us to come here. And so we come to Carolina. I play in three games and I hurt my knee. So all I can do is read the Bible and rehab my knee. And the more I read the Bible, I'm like, wait a minute. This is the greatest news in the world. People need to know about this. And so I decided to retire from the NFL, not sure what I was going to do. But the one thing that I knew, regardless of my career, is I wanted to spend the rest of my life 
whether if I worked in the, at Merrill Lynch or whether if I was a coach, I was going to leverage my life as a missionary. So that's one of the things that I respect about LDS cultures, you know, the young men and young women going on a two-year mission trip. And then as they're older, they do the same thing. And that's what I tell people in our church is God didn't just give you your job so you can pay bills. You're there to be a missionary, work with integrity, compassion, that you're different. And as your life is different, that opens up a door for people to go, why are you different? And then you can introduce them to the difference maker, Jesus. And so that's kind of what happened. But I developed a passion just to read everything and theology and connecting the dots and interpreting scripture and philosophy. It was almost like every day was Christmas and God was putting a new gift under the Christmas tree that I had no idea that I could have. Like the idea, Jerem, that I have spoken in the slums of Calcutta, I've spoken in Germany. In 2022, um, there's people in Norway that want me to come and speak at universities. And it's utterly, it's crazy. In December, I'm going to be speaking at BYU in a business class. And then I'm going to speak at the John, I think, no, no, the Neil Maxwell Institute. And I think back and I, the only thing I can say is it's God's grace because I'm a compulsive stutterer. And I love how God takes things that are your weakness and it makes it a strength. So what we think is a disadvantage, God's grace turns it into a advantage. I love that so much. And I've been so inspired by getting to know you better the last couple of years as we've had you on BYU Sports Nation and whatnot of, it's like Alex Barcelo with BYU basketball, two or three point score at Arizona. Not a great fit. He's, he's probably going through smart things. He comes to BYU. He's one of the best guards in the country. Crazy. Like God can do this with you. He's done this with you. I feel like he's done it in certain parts of my life as well. It's just Absolutely. incredible. Incredible. Mm-hmm. So you're the lead pastor of the Transformation Church um, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. What's it like to be the pastor of a church? Because you grew up with, as you mentioned, <laughs> football is your God, right? And now you're helping lead people, hopefully to the same place where that you're experiencing. Oh, man, what is it like? Well, let me tell you, t- tell you this. It's easier to try to tackle Barry Sanders than to be a spiritual leader. I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Did you ever so, tackle Barry? I did. I did. You actually got him. Field. You picked off Steve and you tackled Barry. That's pretty good. I did. I did. I did. So, of course, they made plays against me, but they're called highlights for a reason. You show your highlights. Um, you know, so what I would say, number one, is this, Jerem, is that um, there is a great sense of gratitude. And then secondly, there's a great sense of urgency that as a shepherd of people, right, God is entrusting their souls into your hands. So therefore, my spiritual formation, my integrity my character is paramount because I'm going to influence so many people that are precious to God. Uh, When I was in Israel several years ago, I was watching uh, a brother and a sister, they were probably both like 12 and maybe eight, and they were herding sheep. And so I went down to take pictures with them and all the sheep just started surrounding me. And it was like I had this epiphany that God is like, I've called you to be a shepherd, and these are my sheep. Care for them. And the way I care for them 
is theologically through preaching and teaching. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we have to have minds that are shaped by the gospel to produce hearts that are compassionate and sensitive and loving. And then the will to join Jesus in loving the world, you know, and walking in holiness and beauty and purity and grace. And so I appreciate that. Now, I had no idea, though, that 20,000 people would watch us online and uh, we'd have a staff of over 50 and our church would be looked at as one of the leading and model churches in the country as it pertains to multi-ethnic congregations. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a biblical scholar. That's, that's just crazy to me. Um, so I'm grateful. And my wife is right by my side. She's an incredible leader. She leads our spiritual formation. We actually founded the church together. And when people say, what, what denomination are you? We say, we're a denomination that loves Jesus and loves people, that we're rooted in the New Testament, and we stretch all the way back into eternity. And so uh, we, we prefer not to give ourselves a label except for love. It's beautiful. And I've met Vicki. She's one of the best people out there. She's amazing. Um, was, was she a better track and field athlete than you were a football player? How did that go? Yeah, you know, so uh, Vicky and I are very competitive. So I wasn't into like girly girls, you know, like I want my pink. No, no, no. I fell in love with her because she could hit a three-pointer in my face, box me out, elbow me in the ribs, you know, <laughs> you know. And um, that's actually how one of the, one of the when, when I first talked to her, all the athletes were playing basketball and Rick Wilson, he was a short spark plug defensive tackle. I asked him, I said, do you know that girl? He's like, yeah. I said, will you ask her if I could talk to her? He's like, yeah. So I actually, we met playing basketball. And so Vicky was incredible. Vicky was valedictorian in high school, valedictorian at BYU. She was, I think 18th in the nation in the javelin. And, uh, she had three jobs my senior year after she graduated, double major, dietetics, poli-sci, minor in Spanish. And then in 1994, for the state of Indiana, she was the young dietitian of the year because she worked at an urban health clinic. So she is a phenomenal athlete. And now she's working on her master's in ministry leadership at Wheaton. And so uh, Jaron, wow. I outpunted my coverage, bro. I outpunted my coverage <laughs> with her. Like I'm letting you know now. You know if we're if we're the Bulls, she's Jordan and I'm Pippen. Hey, that's a good spot to be in. You know, Scotty's <laughs> complaining a lot about Michael right now, but it's a little weird. But no, Scotty's, it's all Scotty's good. trying to sell a book. Yep. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Speaking of, you've written books. How many books have you written now? Uh, I have written six. Uh, my latest one is called God, Do You Hear Me? Discover the Prayer That God Always Answers. So it's a book on teaching you how to pray. And I share a lot of my story in, in that. And then on, in April, I have a book that'll be out called How to Heal the Racial Divide. That'll be out April 5th. That's awesome. And I know last summer we had you on to talk about race relations and how to not just be not racist, but anti-racist. And so We've learned a ton here. I've learned a ton from you the last you know, year or so, not only about race and, and racism, but also about God and grace. It's been awesome. And I uh, really appreciate your contribution, not only to 
this program and talking to you and kind of walking through your life, but also to BYU generally, you're, you're writing in the Des News, you're coming on BYU Sports Nation. It's awesome, man. I, I really oh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I, I appreciate you as well. And I appreciate you guys giving me the platform to be able to share my heart. And uh, I was, uh, I was looking through some old scrapbooks the other day and uh, senior day, my last game at what is now Lavelle Edwards stadium. Uh, I'm getting my Letterman uh, uh, blanket. And so I'm, sh- I'm shaking president Rex Lee's hand and of course coach Edward gives me like this just big giant bear hug and I think about that I'm like man what an incredible blessing you know um what an incredible blessing to be able to do life and experience those relationships and um it's one of these things like, gosh, I wish I could have appreciated it more when I was younger, but I don't think God designed us that way. I think, I think he designed us in such a way that we can look back and not be sad because it happened, but smile because it did. Amen. I love that. Well, Dewey, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. I encourage people to check out your books, check out uh, the videos that you put out. Looking forward to all that content that you produce that uh, is religious-based and integrates football, and it's very interesting and awesome. I mean, is there anything else to do but football and faith? I'm just talking. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, you guys do it for us. have an awesome day, all right? That'll do it for us. Listen to previous episodes on the BYU Radio app or where podcasts are found. For producer Tanner Graff, Derwin Gray, I'm Jerem Jordan. You've just listened to Deep Blue on BYU Radio.